You are listening to the Hematology Podcast by Sanofi. Smoldering multiple myeloma, SMM, is an intermediate condition that lies between monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, MGAS, and active multiple myeloma along the spectrum of clonal plasma cell proliferative disorders. Smoldering multiple myeloma may take years to become active multiple myeloma. In some cases, people who have this condition never develop active myeloma. In this episode, we have the pleasure of having the Norwegian hematologist Fredrik Schesvold with us. Fredrik is the founder and leader of Oslo Myeloma Center at Oslo University Hospital. Fredrik is an international expert on multiple myeloma in charge of one of Europe's largest centers for clinical research in this disease. He is also chairman of the Nordic Myeloma Study Group and leads the Norwegian Myeloma Group. Besides, he is a member of the International Myeloma Working Group and board member of the European Myeloma Network. This is the Hematology Podcast, and I am Mats Mero. Happy that you have time to come to talk to us today, Fredrik. Well, happy to be here. So, Fredrik... Could you just start out by defining and and sort of framing the topic for today? What is actually SMM? How do we define it? Yeah, that definition has changed some years ago. But um, uh, what still uh, is correct is that it's, as you you said yourself, it's something between MGUS, which we consider a benign indolent um, settled disease, and active myeloma, which we should treat. So historically, active myeloma was when there was organ damage, like renal failure or osteolytic lesions in the bones, so on. And smoldering was when you had uh, a large tumor volume, but hadn't uh, yet um, uh, seen this organ uh, damage. But in 2014, we changed the criteria of the disease so that uh, we are now treating patients earlier. So also patients with some biomarkers are considered now active myeloma, meaning if they have a light chain ratio over 100 or two MRI lesions or uh, uh, even higher uh, tumor load with over 60% uh, plasma cells. So it means that the smoldering group has become smaller. Uh, the smoldering group is at least 10% uh, plasma cells in the bone marrow, but without any of these sort of active myeloma-defining uh, events. So it means that it's a, it's a pre-stage that uh, has a larger tumor volume, uh, tumor load than, than MGUS, but not uh, an indication for treatment. Uh, so that's the sort of definition of it today. Mm-hmm. We had the term asymptomatic myeloma before. Is that a term we shouldn't use now? Is it, uh, because I guess that's what it is in a way. That term was used before, but after the 2014 um, change of the criteria of active myeloma, we at least stopped using it because a significant fraction of the active myeloma patients doesn't have any symptoms. So that's why it's sort of wrong to, to, to separate the asymptomatic from the symptomatic since we do treat patients that doesn't have any symptoms, like we do for most cancers if we discover them. Um, so the, the problem is, of course, to find the perfect definition uh, where we treat all patients that would benefit from treatment and don't treat anyone who doesn't benefit from treatment. But that's a difficult uh, task and, and maybe we'll never really get there. And I think we know also from many cancers that to be able to treat all the patients who really need it, we have to treat some patients who probably didn't need it. We, we, we don't know. So even historically, if you found uh, a osteolytic lesion or two uh, and we treat it and we still do that, 
some of these patients might have lived on without that disease developing. So I think to find the perfect um, the perfect definition is very difficult. But I think we're closer now with um, not so new anymore definitions from 2014, but but still. SMM has been quite a hot topic on meetings, and maybe we've hinted on why. Could you just again say a little bit why it's been discussed quite a lot, by why it's a burning topic? Yeah, I think this story started uh, 10-15 years ago when the Kiridex trial from Marie Mateus uh, showed an extremely large survival benefit in treating patients that were at that time uh, high-risk small brain patients. That indirectly led to the change of, of the criteria, so we treat more or define more patients that have, having active myeloma today. But I think it goes back to what I said before: we don't, and nobody believes we have the perfect definition as of today. So, um, uh, and, and there have been also other studies. Um, the most important uh, of the, after the Kiridex trial is the ECO trial from from US, where they treated vilanilidomide or or not observation showing um, a benefit uh, in the high risk patients uh, with um, on progression free survival. Unfortunately, the the study design wasn't uh, sort of able to show overall survival benefit. Partly because uh, when the PFS benefit was there, uh, patients crossed over to get so all, all got treated eventually. So we we still don't know. And I think the discussion mainly goes today while we're waiting for other studies coming up. Uh, randomized studies in this population discussion goes between one school who thinks that we shouldn't uh, treat patients that we don't know whether to treat if we don't have a survival benefit and the other school uh, is sort of um, saying that uh, the the uh, american eco trial showed that we do prevent organ damage we do prevent people developing myeloma meaning getting osteolytic lesion or anemia or renal failure so even without uh, a certain overall survival benefit, um, there is um, a population of hematologists who think that we should treat just to avoid the development of this organ damage. And also, but that also means treating probably patients that never would have developed myeloma. And that's sort of an inherent problem in all of medicine, whether to overtreat or undertreat. It's not possible to not do either. So that's the issue, sort of. It's something we have a lot in hematology. <laughs> Yeah, and, and but we are now waiting for several trials that are maturing. Um, one which will be important is is a randomization versus observation. It's probably the last study being done with observation as a control arm. So it's a, a CA38 antibody, which means that uh, it's it's not a very potent treatment. But we will see there if there is possibility to, to see a survival benefit. But if it is, it will take a really long time and the progression data are not ready yet. And the other trials are randomizations between uh, a more active arm and uh, the control arm, usually lenalidomide dexamethasone. And, and this will also tell us something. But I think this, this uh, discussion will probably go on for, for many years because the answers will not be very clear. And this uh, sort of boils down to also sort of temperament thing whether you want to uh, avoid overtreatment or avoid undertreatment. And I think it's also regulatory-wise. Uh, it's In Europe, it's not possible to use these drugs um, uh, on approval, all indication, all spoldering patients as of today. Smoldering myeloma is a clonal disorder, and it's between MGAS and active myeloma, we said. But it's still quite scary for the patients. How should we inform the patients in a good way to not 
frighten the patient too much? What do you tell your, your patients that they have? I tell them that this is a pre-stage. It, this is like having a polyp in your in your colon or uh, or um, some some benign lesion. This is a pre-stage that might develop to something and it might not. So I don't use the word cancer to these patients. And if they if they ask me, I also say that I I wouldn't call this a cancer because uh, I consider this a pre-stage, uh, and uh, we will follow them uh, and to and treat them early if they need treatment uh, at once uh, time in the future. And, and we also know that we know several things about this. One thing we know is that when we do have the diagnosis of smoldering myeloma, we can we will follow them closely for a long time. So we will be able to, to catch them very early. My experience is that within this population, uh, we don't see sort of the, the really bad uh, newly diagnosed by lower patients where they are hospitalized with a large renal failure and, and so on. So I think by following this, we're able to treat them early. And I think that's something we try to tell them that this is perfectly okay. Mm. It's funny, you actually say similar what I say to my patients. And I think this is very important. It's... it's uh, uh, one should not really scare them too much. It's important. It's interesting now that what you said, that we have moved some of uh, what we keep previously called SMM or, or, or um, asymptomatic myeloma to active myeloma. How frequent is this? What do we know about the incidence and prevalence of SMM now? Yeah, I think it's uh, it depends a little bit on the population you're studying and whether it's retrospective uh, or, or coincidental or whether it's uh, screening. But I think if you are around uh, 60, 70, 80 years old, which is sort of the common um, diagnostic age of myeloma, I think the Icelandic data to screen the population found that actually uh, 4 or 5% of patients actually have smoldering myeloma. Uh, this is higher than we used to think uh, because they screened the whole population or most of the population over 40. And oh, did they actually see smoldering myeloma or are you including MGAS here also? No, I'm, I'm t- talking about uh, smoldering myeloma because what they did was that they randomized patients between um, a very thorough workup if they had an MGAS. And then they saw a very high number of smoldering myeloma, much higher than we have known before. But we have to say also that we are not sure that this population is the same as the smoldering population we have known from before. They had a lower melatonin component than what is uh, common from other data and probably have a better prognosis, but that's a bit too early to tell. But it was a surprisingly high number when you bone marrowed all patients with an amgus like they did in that study. If you look at the proportion of patients with a diagnosis of myeloma, how many, how, how, do you have an idea how big the proportion that are smoldering is? I think they are not so few. No, it's quite many, and, it's, and I think it's different from place to place, whether depending on how the sort of general workup and staging is done from, from place to place and how it's registered. We, we actually have a problem in Norway, and I know the same for Sweden. It's that the cancer registry doesn't separate the small ring from the active myelomas. So, so it's a bit difficult to, to really have good numbers on this. We believe in Norway at least that of the patients that are diagnosed with myeloma, the fraction of the small rings is still quite small, let's say 5-10% or something like that. And it's a, bit, it's a bit smaller now, of course, after we had the new criteria, which sort of moves significant proportion of these patients into, into the active myeloma diagnosis that previously was uh, smoldering. 
those patients constitutes about 10, 15% of those who we now call active myeloma were previously uh, smoldering myeloma. Mm. And of those that we still call smoldering, how many of them do you think never will get an active myeloma, never be treated? It's a bit different, of course, with the risk factors we look at. If you look at the non-high risk, I think very many of them will develop myeloma. But the exact, exact number, I don't know. I, but, but, but I have to say, we, we participated in, um, this is of course, small numbers, but we participated in the, in the Aquila trial with high-risk uh, swallowing myeloma. And all patients that were observed have developed myeloma since that study started a couple of years ago. So for the high risk, I think a very large group of them will, will develop myeloma at one, at one stage. Okay, let's move to something else. We know quite a lot now about genetic changes in, in multiple myeloma. And we also, in this podcast, uh, had some review of what we know about that we also see genetic changes in MGAS. What do we know about the progression from MGAS to active multiple myeloma on a genetic level? Can you elucidate us on this? What we have sort of learned so far is that I think the most important thing that there's no sort of genetic separation between swollen myeloma and myeloma, active myeloma. You, you cannot say that you have this lesion, hence you have myeloma. But, but there is a development, and, and, uh, and that's a development that goes from MGUS until uh, the most aggressive uh, relapsed myelomas is sort of increasing presence of some um, genetic uh, markers. So you have sort of two kind of genetic markers if you sort of simplify it a little bit in myeloma. One is the initial event, which is uh, often a translocation of the chromosome 14. And that's probably present from the start of the clonal disease and probably the initiating uh, event of the clonal disease. So that's either present or not. Uh, and we also have um, some other uh, initiating events which are sort of more obscure, I would say. The patients then usually have a better prognosis. But what happens as the disease develops is that uh, you, you, um, you gain more sort of aggressive genetic markers. The lesion 17P, which is uh, one of the most known, is, is a common risk factor in all, all kinds of cancer. You have RAS mutations, which is increasing as time goes, and you have... Um, Chromosome 1 changes, uh, gain 1Q or amplification 1Q and also deletion of 1P. And these are not initiating events, but they are increasing as, as the disease develops and also connected to a uh, worse prognosis. So you see that in, when you look at these factors, if you look at uh, smoldering versus MGUS, uh, an increasing number of patients have these uh, markers. And if you look at active myeloma, even more have. And if you look at uh, relapse myeloma, more and more gain in these this, uh, additional events, also weak mutations. So it's, it's sort of a gradual change, but, you, but there's no sort of a threshold or cutoff or separation between smoldering myeloma. You can see all the, all the same changes, but if you see them in smoldering myeloma, you are more likely to develop active myeloma. Even though this is not commonly used as a high-risk marker in, in, um, in, in studies, but it's still a high-risk marker. What genetic analysis do you recommend that we should do today in myeloma patients? And do you think we will do more in the future, considering what you just said? I think that we do, both in myeloma and in smoldering myeloma and in other diseases, we do evaluations that don't have an immediate treatment um, consequence. 
but we still do it because it says something about prognosis is part of our standard workup. So I will answer your question in what we do. Uh, we do uh, chromosome 14 translocations. We do del- 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 deletion 17P, deletion 13P. We do chromosome 1 uh, aberrations, uh, 1Q and 1P, and that's it. Uh, and you could argue for doing less, or you can argue for doing more. But this is our standard work of both in uh, in uh, smoldering and, and active myeloma. Is that usually fish? or? Yeah, that's fish. Um, mm. If you do karyotyping, it's better. Uh, but we, and we do it sort of irregularly, not so seldom. We, we don't, there's not enough um, growing cells to, to do both. And we, and we sort of uh, prioritize fish. But if you do karyotyping, you're able to pick up more rare events and more complicated chromosomal changes, uh, which is also connected with the bad prognosis. But I think what we are not doing, uh, which is probably something we will do more in the future. Today, it's uh, sort of an economical and practical question, and also because it's not that consequential. But um, I think what says more about the prognosis, and we will know more about that as time goes, is the gene expression profiles, where you look at many um, genes, how they're expressed, and you get the score. And this uh, seems to to have a very sort of informative impact on on prognosis. but. Uh, it's still not as sort of standard as uh, fish, which which is what we're using in a daily routine. And that would, of course, also give us more knowledge, maybe, of how to diverse the groups here. Yeah, maybe. But um, if you disregard the fact that patients with translocation 1114 can benefit from a VCL2 inhibitor, venetoclax um, and, and, and others, we don't have many biomarkers that actually can tell us what to treat with. And actually, we are today mostly treating all patients in the same way. Uh, and this is what most people do, because the, the sort of conclusion from, let's say, everything that has been done is that if you have a treatment that works better in, let's say, high-risk, aggressive patients, this treatment will also work better in the standards. So, so we don't have much separation in treat. The only thing is that if you have a high-risk disease and or an aggressive disease, it's maybe easier both for the patient and the, and the doctors to tolerate uh, side effects or impact on quality of life uh, versus a standard-risk patient or a small-ring patient, where it's more important to contain that. But, but the benefit from the treatment is usually the same, no matter what the disease is. And hopefully in the future, we can be more like AML, where you can use biomarkers to have a different treatment. But as of today, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. I think you've hinted on this before, but let's. these are asymptomatic patients, and let's move back just to, to, to how they are discovered. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, um, they, but that's not completely true, and that's also a reason what, not to call it asymptomatic, because actually there are a number of patients that have, uh, have smoldering myeloma that have symptoms. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. When I started hematology, there were other definitions of active myeloma. Uh, osteoporosis was part of it. If you had um, a myeloma clone, you had osteoporosis, or if you have frequent infections. But as of today, these are not in the criteria. Uh, and the reason for that is that they are very common and very unspecific. So it's difficult to, to say that these are because of myeloma. That's why they went out. But I have patients with smoldering myeloma where I'm positive that their osteoporosis um, and or their frequent infections are because of myeloma. 
Uh, and you also have patients with anemia. It's just not enough anemia to, to fulfill the, the diagnostic criteria. And you have patients that has fatigue that are sort of not feeling well, weight loss, these kind of things, but that sort of doesn't fulfill the criteria of myeloma. And these are difficult patients. Uh, and we, when we have them in, in clinical trials, we see that many of these patients actually benefit also clinically from, from getting treatment, even though they were so-called asymptomatic. But it's, uh, for, for us as a, as a study center, this is a bit complicated because we have seen uh, many times that if you sort of clinically treat a patient you think have myeloma, uh, but it doesn't fulfill the, the criteria, this patient will never be able to enter a clinical trial because every clinical trial specifies that you need to have fulfilled the, the, the criteria of myeloma at one time. So we are sort of, by treating them too early, we are removing their possibilities in the future. Uh, and that's a sort of problem that is a bit not, not clinical because we could, we could treat these patients because we clinically believe they would benefit. But it does impact their, their treatment later. So that was actually going to be my next question, if you ever should treat these patients, but you don't, or? No, we treat patients uh, in, uh, with bone myeloma in trials. We don't treat patients outside of trials. What we do if they have smoldering myeloma, there's no trial, and they have, for instance, osteoporosis, we can treat with uh, osteoporosis treatment. If they have infections, we can, which is usually based on hypogammaglobulinemia, we can give them um, gammaglobulins. But we, we tend not to treat them before they fulfill the, the diagnosis. But of course, we, we follow them more closely if they have these symptoms, because then it's probably not a question of a very long time before. And then, and then we sort of try to find the definition of disease that, that's um, within the criteria. Mm-hmm. So you would not recommend treatment of smoldering myeloma outside clinical trials? No. For, for the, for the my, my myeloma treatment? No, I, not, not today. Um, I don't think we have the data. I think we will over-treat a lot of patients. But if we have patients like I'm talking about now, who has more in myeloma and clearly is sick from this, either with osteoporosis or infections, fatigue or uh, anemia, just not enough anemia, I think it will be clinically perfectly okay to just call it myeloma and treat. I'm just uh, a bit worried that because I like to have patients into clinical trials that we are removing uh, future options for them. You just need to be aware of that. But of course, if you... Let's say if you live way up north in Norway and, and being a part of a clinical trial is probably never going to happen because of practical issues. It's sort of easier. If you live in Oslo and you have uh, lots of options uh, all the time, uh, it's maybe important to not sort of uh, delete those uh, options. We have the same situation with smoldering patients that are into a trial and get tre- gets treated because they were, treatment when they were treated when they didn't have active myeloma. So we put them into relapse trials, but it means that between their smoldering treatment and their relapse trial, they need to develop organ disease. So they need to get also retaliation or light chain ratio or 100 or, or whatever. Uh, but then we can put them into trials. So they do. So that's, of course, possibility for a first time as smoldering patients use peak needed treatment to sort of just postpone that diagnosis. So maybe in the meantime, we will change uh, that. But... To, to answer your question, if you have a smoldering patient without any 
symptom you think is connected to myeloma, I think I would definitely not treat as of today. Mm. So just to wrap up here, what will, I mean, we still have this entity in between this clonal plasma cell disorder in between MGAS and active myeloma. The exact patients that we call small myeloma has changed, you've told us. And how do you think the future will be? Will we keep this this group or or, or will the def- definitions change and, and will the diagnostics change? What do you see? It's a bit difficult to know what will happen, but I think what we would like to happen is to remove the small rate uh, diagnosis. And by that, I mean that to get a more perfect threshold for when to treat and not to treat. So in 2014, we reduced the, the group of um, smoldering uh, at one time, one period there. Before we did that, we called it ultra-high-risk um, smoldering myeloma. And that ultra-high-risk were eventually put into the active myeloma group. Uh, and I think uh, with the trials going on now and the trials that have been going on, the ECO trial, I think we are, if eventually those studies read out so that we also include a new group, what we today call high-risk smoldering myeloma into the active myeloma group, then the smoldering becomes even smaller. At one time, when we have cherry-picked the smoldering myeloma group enough so that the remaining are very few, I think we'll just lump them together and call them MGUS and, and start talking about high-risk MGUS instead. That's sort of a long-term thing. But I think eventually we would like to be there. So if you get the clone of plasma cell disease, you either have something indolent, which you should not treat, or you have myeloma, which we should, should treat, and not this in-between stage where everybody's discussing. No, it seems reasonable. So very interesting. I think you've really given us interesting information about SMM. And thank you so much for joining me and sharing your knowledge, Fredrik. Thanks for having me. You have just listened to the Hematology Podcast by Sanofi. 